0: They're reading a very important scripture today. We've been talking about the book of Ephesians. It's the racial reconciliation letter of the Bible. We know there was a letter from the Birmingham jail. This is a letter from the Roman jail by the Apostle Paul, and it's how we deal with reconciliation. Thank you very much.
1: Good morning. I'll be reading from Ephesians 1, 17, and 18. I ask the God of glory to make you intelligent and discerning, in knowing him personally your eyes focused and clear so that you can see exactly what it is he's calling you to do
0: and this this is out of Ephesians 6 verses 10 to 12 finally be strong in the lord and in his mighty power put on the full armor of god so that you can stand so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Wonderful. Thank you, Devin and Vicki. I want to point a couple things to you, right? So that scripture's on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along with this. Notice what it said. God wants to open our eyes. He wants to help us to focus. He wants us to see clear so that we what? So we can see exactly what he is calling us to. Very important for today. That's one. Two. You notice in the chapter six, remember, this is all about here is the plan, the path, the racial reconciliation. And things are very prominent in the book of Ephesians that we have to take notice of. We're in chapter six, final chapter of Ephesians in the letter, in the letter right? And so it's this. What? For our struggle is not against flesh. In other words, it's not against people. But it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Not against people. So think about this. If our struggle is not against people when it comes to division, if our struggle is not against people, what else are you going to do but pray? What else are you going to do? So today's message is entitled, The Method." Or, or the plan. So before we get into it, um, who are you picking next week? Super Bowl. Patriots. 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 Okay. You, you, you're, a little, you're, you're a little more into it. Than the, first, the first serve is like nothing. <laughs> okay, right? So what you're hoping, if you're for the Patriots, you're for the Falcons. What you're hoping is that they go into the huddle, right? They go into their huddle and they come out with a winning plan. Right. Last week that didn't work so well for the Steelers, the Packers, Right? Uh, not, not much of a winning plan that was there. What you're hoping is they go into the huddle, come out. This is the huddle today. So what is a church service? A church service is a huddle. We're coming together to talk about, from the Bible, what's the plan that works? And particularly, Dave, what's the plan that works? It defeats injustice or brings racial reckons. So here we are. We're huddled together, and we've got to come a plan. Now, there's two different plans that we actually see that exists. And this is what we're gonna talk about this morning. We've been talking a lot about prayer and I just wanted to make mention of this. This is the Time Magazine from just yesterday that came to me in the mail. I noticed that there's an interview with Trayvon Martin's family because I guess we're around the five years uh, since since his death. Last week we talked about the need for healing, that that, that we have to have the wounds in our own heart, but broken people break people. So we have to, if we're gonna have reconciliation, we have to have some healing in our own hearts. And that takes prayer. So we had a huge prayer gathering this past week. God help us to forgive. And I just thought it was interesting. They asked them, you know, about their faith and what's brought about healing. This is what they said. There is only one way to come out of that dark place, and that is through the power of prayer. Prayer plays a very prominent role in the book of Ephesians, the racial reconciliation letter in the Bible. And we want to talk about this today. What is the winning plan? Dr king said this, man must evolve for all human conflict, notice this, a method, which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation. The foundation of such a method is love. So here we go. There is a method. It's outlined for us in the book of Ephesians. It says that Jesus Christ has a method to deal with conflict and injustice and racial reconciliation. But chapter 6 that we just read also tells us, it says the devil has a scheme. That word means method. Christ has a method. Satan has a method to deal with the problem. Now, in the West, we're immediately uncomfortable when we start talking about the devil and Satan, and all this kind of stuff, because the numbers are this. About 95% of people that live in the West believe in God. They believe in some positive spiritual force at least, right? The God of the Bible or some positive spiritual force. But less than 50% believe in the devil. So immediately, right, if I'm guessing, I've just lost half of you. But let me make my case. Okay, Give me time to make my case. There's two different methods. You, you have Christ's methods, which is about love and prayer and forgiveness and seeking to understand, all of, all of that. And then you have this other method over here. So the word scheme is method, and it's used of an animal hunting its prey. So an animal would hunt its prey by just overpowering all of a sudden that animal, right? It would hunt and just attack. So Satan's scheme is right. The method is that when there's a breakdown, when there's a problem, you just, you just pounce. Anybody know what I'm talking about? So you don't like what somebody's saying, you, you pounce. None of you ever do that, but maybe you've seen somebody else do that. Right? You're going to defeat insults by using insults. Right? Can't stand the injustice, so I'll use some injustice or I'll use some insults. So that's this plan. The other plan is through deception. So an animal would attack another animal's prey and would use deception somehow to deceive. It would come in real you know, cunning-like. So these two different methods. And so what you see is Christ has a method for dealing with it and Satan has a method and Christ's method is the method that has worked not only in biblical times but also throughout history. So what method, here it is, what method if we really want to defeat injustice, if we really want to make a difference when it comes to the issue of racial reconciliation what method should we choose? Should we not go back, study the Bible, study history, and figure out what's worked? Okay. <laughs> We're talking about the devil today. Things are falling. <laughs> Things are falling in the back. I don't know what's, uh, what's up. All right. Our struggle is not against, it's not against people. We've been talking about this concept because Ephesians says we have a sin nature, right? I can't go deep into it now, but it's this word, S-A-R-X, sarks. Very simple. We don't like to be called sinners. We don't hate constant... But you know, all it means is being self-centered. So all of us on some level can understand that we have some self-centeredness in us. And and Satan is kind of like a masseuse. He wants to come along and massage that sark so we feel really, really comfortable. Right? What I have noticed as I have been studying, studying, studying this issue throughout history is... Repeatedly, you'll have a group of people who are voiceless or powerless on some level. They're experiencing horrific injustice. And you have another group of people over here that for the sake of their comfort and convenience, they're willing for the injustice to go on. And this happens all throughout history. I want you to think about it. i also like you to take some time, maybe sometime today, and pray about it. What groups who are voiceless and powerless for the sake of another group's comfort and convenience are experiencing an injustice. Now, our Sark says to us is, well, you know, that happened in the past, but it's not happening now. I would never do it now. But here's what history tells us. History tells us that your great grandkids are gonna look back at you and be embarrassed. That's what history tells us. And they say, why didn't you see it? How could you not? See, you know, we look back to the 1950s, and we say, ah, wow, I mean, come on, you couldn't see that? But our SARCS blinds us. We're told that the devil actually binds us. I was, I was listening to a guy give a talk the other day, and he said he was talking to a friend. He was a great guy, great guy talking to friends. And the friend was saying talking about how there's such, you know division and strife and problems and, and all the need for racial reconciliation. And this guy says, "I just wish we could go back to the 1950s." He's a good guy. He was a good guy. I just want to go back. I mean, everything was so nice back then. Everything was great. It was like a beautiful time. Well, it was beautiful for you. <laughs> but see, Satan's like a masseuse to our sarks. Here's the thing. All right, here's the kicker, everybody. We can see it. Hindsight's twenty twenty. We look in our rearview mirror 50 years back and say, like, Oh, my gosh, how come you couldn't see it? You know what that means? If you'll read through history, you see it always keeps happening. So what does that mean to you and me right now? means there's something right here right now right here right now that we are blinded to and somebody's suffering injustice maybe multiple groups of, okay are you willing to have your eyes open to that because when it does it gets a little dicey it gets a little uncomfortable are you willing to are you willing to have your world flipped around oh, you believe a certain way right now like, yeah yeah preach go ahead job but are you willing to have all of a sudden, your eyes open to maybe a different way. That's, that's when justice really starts happening. That's when justice really starts happening. Okay, I want to talk about two things today. Prayer precedes reconciliation, and proximity promotes it. Prayer precedes, proximity promotes. I've been talking about William Wilberforce the past couple of weeks, so let's go ahead and you know, let's just dive right into William Wilberforce for the next three minutes and say you know who he was. He's called the father of the abolitionist movement. He's been called the greatest social reformer in the history of the world. He was born in 1759 in England to a very, very wealthy family, William Wilberforce was. And um, at the age of nine, his father suddenly passes away. His mother is ill. So the mother and the grandfather decide to send him to Wimbledon, like Wimbledon, right? He has an aunt and an uncle, who are I mean, they're fabulously wealthy. So he goes to live with them. At that time in England, everybody, um, uh, people, socially respectable people, believed that God was an impersonal force if God existed at all. You wouldn't believe the Bible. You wouldn't believe that Jesus is God. It was just respectable to just, to, you know, hey, maybe there's something out there. We don't know, but if there is, it's important. You would never, you understand, that was the climate of the age. Well, what the mother and the grandfather didn't realize is is the aunt and the uncle in Wimbledon were like full-blown on-fire Methodists, right? Revivalist Methodists. They believed the Bible. They believe Jesus is God. I mean, they're just throwing down. Well, he lives there for three years. He meets John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, the famous hymn that we sing, who had been the captain of a slave ship. He meets him. He meets all these famous He's a young kid, like. So he's there until he's 12 years old. And then grandfather and mother find out what aunt and uncle are up to, and they just freak out. They, go, oh my gosh, this is so embarrassing. What will all of our friends think? He's down here with these people. That, right, so they pull him out. Actually, grandfather says this. He says, "Quote: If Billy turns Methodist, he'll not see a penny of mine." So they got him out immediately because grandfather had a lot of money. So he comes out. Now, at the age of skip forward to age of twenty. At the age of twenty, he's elected to parliament. Can you imagine that at such a young age? He's elected to parliament. He's smart. He's witty. He's a great speaker. He is the life of every part. He's very popular. Everybody everybody just loves this guy. He joins five gentlemen's clubs in London. He stays out all night, every night, drinking, gambling, singing, just having a fantastic time. So there is William Wilberforce. In 1784, he's about 25 years old. He's single. He's rich. He's famous. What do you do for vacation? How do you spend your summer? Well of course you spend it on the Italian and French Riviera. So he makes these huge plans to go and hang out and he wanted to take somebody with him because he knew it would be a couple weeks in travel. So he contacts an old friend of his who he had lost touch with but had recently had bumped into. The guy's name is Isaac Milner. The interesting thing about Wilberforce, Wilberforce is about five foot two and about 100 pounds, right? And Isaac Milner is about six eight, three hundred 300 pounds. So the two of them were like quite a pair, right? So they're hanging out with each other for a long time. now. Uh, Milner is the the Lucasian professor of mathematics. Smart people hold this post. Sir Isaac Newton held this post. And who who is this guy? Steve Hawking. So pretty much, see, Hawking also held that post recently. Okay? So pretty much Milner is the smartest guy in any room that he walks into. There's the deal with Milner. So they're traveling. They're going up over the mountains doing other thing and they're discussing all kinds of stuff. And then out of, out of the blue one day, you know, Wilberforce says, brings up church and brings up the Bible and says, who in the world would believe that the Bible is true? And Milner says, I do. And then Milner begins to give a very compelling argument over the weeks and weeks and weeks that follow. And a deep, deep depression sets in. On Wilberforce. Why? Because he's like, oh no, this is true. You gotta love the Brits. Because the way it's described is that he entered into months of melancholy. <laughs> People thought he was dying. They didn't know what's happened to him. He wouldn't leave the house. He's just miserable. He's just absolutely mis- It goes on for two years. Wilberforce says that at that time, God was opening his eyes that he could not see, and then all of a sudden things that he never saw before, all the injustices that he was surrounded by, he he just could not see them. He begins to get a group of people around him called the Clapham Sect, and he just prays. Now Wilberforce prays every day, but he's got a whole group of people that are praying for him too, and they're just they're praying against the injustice. They're praying that their eyes would be open, and they were, you know, his life was threatened because of things he did. I want to read you a list of things that he did because he did so much more than just fight against slavery, uh, child labor laws. Five-year-olds were working twelve-hour days for the comfort and convenience of a group of people. Five-year-olds, 12-hour days in horrible conditions. He attacked that. Uh, alcoholism. Alcoholism was absolutely rampant. I know some of us, we, we, we think about American history, right, and the temperance movement and then prohibition and then Al Capone, right? You think about that and we think some of us grew up in, in churches where like you don't, you don't drink. You don't drink. You're drinking the devil's brew if you drink. Does anybody know what I'm talking about here? Does anybody? anybody okay. 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 Do you, know, do you know where that came from? Do you know why? I, I said this when we were going through this uh, series a few, a few months back. I talked about John Rockefeller's mother-in-law who would go into bars in Cleveland, get down on her knees and pray and beg the men at the bar not to drink. Do you know Why? Here's what was happening. This this was not happening in small corners of the world. It was happening. It was rampant, okay? Is that men were going out and they were drinking all the money away and that women and children were at home experiencing horrific injustice. And so what Christians saw was this was happening, and they thought it was bad for women and children to be experiencing horrific injustice. Anybody here think that it's bad for women and children to experience horrific injustice? That's where, so that's where it came from. I'm not doing anything on alcohol. So if you're, like, nervous, like, are you telling me not to drink? That's not what I'm doing. I'm giving, I'm, 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 I'm giving you the genesis of a story that after a while it, it's forgotten. Like, why are you doing this? We all need to remember why things start. I think it's really, really important. Sex trafficking. 20, over 20% of the single women living in London were prostitutes. Average age was 16. He attacks that. People weren't happy about this stuff. Animal cruelty was off the charts. He attacks animal cruelty. Prison reform. Excessive punishment for crimes. Slavery, obviously. He deals with all of these things throughout his lifetime. He quits all five of these gentlemen's clubs in one day. He thinks about going into the ministry. He thinks about going into the monastery. He sneaks out one night while he's in that phase where he's trying to decide what to do, the two great years of change, where he's all depressed and everything. And so he sneaks out one night and he sees John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace. Sneaks out and sees. Don't anybody know, because he's, he's embarrassed, because socially respectable people don't go and see somebody who's like full on for Jesus, right? He sneaks out at night to see him. And John Newton says, Don't you dare... Leave Parliament. Serve God. And God gives him the two great battles. And the two great battles in Wilberforce's own words were he was going to fight against slavery and he was going to fight to restore proper manners. That means all the things that I just listed, alcoholism and that, because the British just have a different way of saying things, okay? (laughs) This change was extremely, extremely challenging. Now listen, everybody. If our struggle, how do we go about it? God has called the church to be a leader to fight against injustice. God has called the church clearly to be a leader in racial reconciliation. What is the method that we choose? If our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's not against people. That raises the priority of prayer right through the roof. What else would you do? Like if that, I'm not saying that you withdraw, because obviously Wilberforce did not withdraw from society, but. If our battle is not primarily against people, what else? I I can't. So if I'm battling against spiritual force, what am I going to stand here and punch? I'm punching. What am I doing? What else am I going to do but go to God? It raises the priority of prayer right through the roof. And Wilberforce and all those around them prayed, and they understood this. They understood this. Dr. King also understood this. I'm going to have a letter read. Tom. Come right on up. Why Tom's coming up, let me say something about this. Dr. King also understood. Many of you have read this about Dr. King. Remember the night he received a threatening phone call? Got him all the time. Going to kill you. Right? And what what did he do? At his kitchen table in the middle of the night, all by himself, he pours out his heart to God. And then he describes it this way in one of his books. He received a visitation of the power of God that came upon him and steeled him to continue on it is, according to history and the Bible, a struggle that's not against people but against forces of darkness. Now, Tom is going to read a letter. He's going to do. I had to have Tom because proper English. It's a letter from John Wesley, uh, the founder of Methodism. Probably the last letter he ever wrote before he died to William Wilberforce. Notice what Tom says. Go ahead, Tom. Dear sir.
1: Unless the divine power has raised you up to be Athanasius contra mundum against the world, I do not see how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that execrable villainy which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on. In the name of God and in the power of his might. John Wesley. Thank you very much. That
0: was excellent. That's why I wanted to, I could have never, I could never. It's my brother, Timmy. Everybody say hi. Timmy's from Nigeria. Hi, everybody. Okay. All right, this is very important because some of us are nervous about talking about the devil and forces of darkness and what I want to build a case for in the next 30 seconds, 60 is uh, that A, um, when you realize that your battle is not against people but against forces, it raises the priority of prayer, and B, it could be extremely culturally insensitive to just say, "Hey, get rid of all that forces of darkness stuff." OK So I've, I've been to Timmy knows, I've been to Nigeria. I spent two wonderful weeks in, in Nigeria. I spoke it. I spoke at a church. A little bit different than here. Our services were five hours over, there. not that right to me? Absolutely. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Timmy often tells me, hey, what, you know, what's the deal? Don't worry about time. I'm like, hey, we got it. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> Five hours. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful time. Uh, I was dreading the fact that when I spoke, I had to use an interpreter. That's so difficult to do. I mean, I have a hard enough time just speaking all by myself, but through an interpreter, it's very difficult. And I said, well, what, what language do you speak in there? They said English. So I'm speaking, is, he says, yeah, you've never heard English like this before. Yeah. <laughs> I got to tell you what, that was the greatest interpreter I ever had in my life. That interpreter, like, he, he preached the message better than I did. He did everything I did. He just did it better. So <laughs> it, it, it was wonderful. Here's why, here's why I have uh, Timmy up here, okay? Can you show the picture, Dan, of La Sana? Okay, this is a professor from Yale. And he's written some wonderful, wonderful books. And this is what he says. He was Muslim, grew up in Africa, became a convert to Christianity. And he says at Harvard and Yale, you come to Harvard and Yale, and they say, hey, yes, we love your culture from Africa. Bring your dress and bring your food. It's all good. Leave all the spirit behind. We're not interested in the spirit world. And what he says is that's very culturally insensitive. He said because battling in the spirit world is the heart of the African culture. Now, Timmy, here we come to you. We're looking for verification. Nigeria, is this true? Is that the heart of the African culture? Absolutely. Absolutely, he said. Absolutely. Hold on. Let me get you mic over here. I'm not. I'm going to hold the mic because I know what will happen if I give it to Timmy. (laughs) (laughs) I just. I just know. I just know. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Okay. Is prayer like a massive priority in Africa? Without any doubt. Okay, okay. So Some of you were with our prayer vigil this past week. You, you were there. You saw Timmy prayed the house down, right? And one of the things he did in the midst of his prayer, he rebuked Satan. I, I just want to... I'm just saying to you, okay? When I was in Nigeria, you know, I stepped off the the stage around, and there was, there was like this room where prayer always went on. It was like a five-alarm demon fire going on in there, right? The people were just praying it out, right? Right. right. That is... Right. You can hold that. We just don't get carried away. Uh, <laughs> prayer is. It, wh- where are the most church-going Christians in the world right now? Africa, right? Is prayer a priority? Absolutely. And is it the heart of the culture, spiritual warfare? Without any doubt. Okay. Okay. I just. All right. Just wanted to say that. So we are all open. Want to be tolerant? You know. So okay. All right. Good. Thank you. Around Timmy. I. I just thought it would be more effective coming from Timmy than from, uh, from, from me. All right. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm wrapping up, and we're going to have a very special story here for you in, in just one second. The Bible says that our enemy is not of this world. Here's the method. Think about this, how that changes your method. All right. Second thing, concluding point. Proximity promotes reconciliation. So prayer precedes And proximity promotes. Wonderful story of Jesus Christ in John chapter 4. Sworn enemies was the Jewish people against the Samaritan peoples. You wouldn't even walk through Samaria. like you go way out of your way to get around Samaria. And Jesus intentionally goes through Samaria, reaching out to people who are his sworn enemies. It's fascinating. He's giving us the method to reconciliation, reaching out. Could you do that? So he goes, and he's by himself. He's at this well. And a woman from the Samaritan village comes out. She's by herself. He's by ship. And so he says to her, he says, could I have a drink? And she says, she says, what? She says, "Uh, I don't know. She says to him, you don't even have anything to drink from. When he was asking for a drink from her, he was saying, I am willing to put my Jewish lips on your Samaritan cup. Whoa. You know what that means? You know what he's conveying to her? I respect you, I value you, I'm willing to listen to you, I'm willing to learn from you, I'm willing to reach out to you. Are you willing to put your lips on what you perceive to be your sworn enemy's cup? A lot of tension going on in this world today. Satan's method is to vilify and to polarize and to insult. And Christ's method is to reach out, to listen, to learn, to pray, to seek to understand, to love, to not reject, but to work towards reconciliation. Now, that's all I'm going to say about that. I'm going to ask Stephanie if Stephanie would come up. And as she does, I'm just going to tell you a quick story before she begins. Proximity promotes. I want you to remember this. Proximity promotes. Okay? Uh... Everybody, welcome. Stephanie. Uh-huh. So, uh huh. So some people think I'm cheap. I probably am cheap. So my son loves sports a whole lot. He really loves sports. And so I finally broke down many, many years ago and got cable so he could watch all the sports stations. He's about 10 years old, and he discovered the religious stations. And I came in from work one day, and T.D. Jakes, anybody know who T.D. Jakes is? Right? T.D. Jakes is on him. man. He just... He's just going. I mean, he's, he's all over. He's, I don't think he's on the stage. Like, he's walking everywhere. Like, he would be out, everything, and he's sweating. He, and people are standing up preaching. There's like 10 people preaching back at him at the same. They're not just saying amen. Like, give me an amen, right? No, it's more than that. It's like whole sermons, right? It's just alive. So I come in, and my son, who has tremendous energy, right, he has tremendous energy, when he gets really excited, he would shake like this. So he's standing in front of the TV. And he's like, whoa. And so, so he says, Dad, come here. Come here, Dad come here he said, look at this have you ever seen this I'm standing next to him and he is just glowing about two minutes into it he just stops and he turns to me gets this real quiet look on him he says why can't you preach like that dad <laughs> you know where that style came from you know where that style came from um, because uh, the vast majority of African Americans were Christians And those who felt called to be in the ministry wanted to get education. Nobody would let them in the seminaries. They couldn't go to the Bible colleges. You know who said, you know what, we're going to take them under our wing and we're going to teach and mentor. You know who did it? Scottish preachers. Like, as white as white can be, Scottish preachers. And they mentored them. And you know... Do you know where that style came from? You want to know where that is? That is pure Scotland. Yes. Now, Stephanie's going to tell us a fabulous story. We talk about how powerful proximity is. Thank you very much for being here.
2: So I grew up in southern Indiana, and the thing that most people don't know about southern Indiana is even though it is considered a northern, Indiana is considered a northern state, it has a racial history that's more in line with that of a deep south state. So for example, in the 50s and 60s, we had a surge of lynchings and cross burnings, and White people did pretty much anything and everything to make uh black people feel not welcome. Even in my hometown of Evansville, Indiana, uh the entire black community was burned to the ground and the people were basically exiled. So this is in the environment that I ca- uh I grew up in. I began uh school in 1970 and I learned as a kindergartner early on that I had better be on my best behavior because I was under extreme scrutiny. I was the first of 3 black children to attend a previously all white school. So everything I did was like under a microscope and was being analyzed. And it made for a very unpleasant childhood. To top it all off, as I'm growing up and going through school and I'm learning about other people's history and other people's culture, I'm not learning about my own because the school does not even acknowledge Black History Month. And this was well before the time where we had MLK Day. So I felt sort of lonely and isolated and I was trying to be a good kid and I was even an overachiever. I got good grades. And when I got into high school, I was like, I need to get out of southern Indiana so I made the decision to go to uh, what we called back then an historic Negro college in Atlanta Georgia and I thought this is going to be great because I was an idealist and I was thinking to myself it'll be great I can go to Atlanta and experience all this fabulous black culture and merge with other black minds from the African diaspora and we will grow together and change the world and I got down to Atlanta I was so excited and that is exactly what did not happen I got down there and I happened to go to a school that had a corrupt administration the president was embezzling funds from the school and it created a horrible chain of events where I lost all of my college scholarships my campus housing, my job but the thing that devastated me the most was I lost my stellar 4.0 GPA which was the thing that I had defined myself by and I was devastated and I had to go back home to the one place I didn't want to go which was southern Indiana and I didn't even tell anybody so 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 I just came home and showed up at my mom's doorstep one day and she's like, why are you here? And I explained to her what happened and she said, well, I'm really sorry about that, but I just sold your bedroom furniture and your room is now my TV slash sitting room so you can't stay here. So in protest and partially out of shock, I went to go live in the garage and this wasn't like a Greg Brady's bachelor pad in the Brady Bunch renovated garage kind of garage. This was a garage and I lived in the space in front of the car. I got some patio furniture and put down some uh, cushions and I made a bed and I wake up every morning looking at the grill of the car and smelling lawnmower clippings and exhaust and I became clinically depressed. I was sleeping About 12 to 14 hours a day Now the thing you have to realize About clinical depression Is you are not just sad You do not have enough energy To execute anything And the gears in your head Do not move It takes you forever To connect the dots So it took me a tremendous amount of effort to do anything. It was like, I felt like I was moving through taffy when I was trying to do the simplest tasks. So I decided to open up a newspaper one day and look for a job. And I was looking at the classifieds and it was, it was like the heavens had opened up and sent me a message. I could hear the angels in my head going, ah, when I read this caption that said, sitters wanted. And I was like, that's great. It's a great job for a depressed person. A gig is a sitter. And so I had no idea what. That was so. I went <laughs> to the company, and it was a, a place called Health Skills, and it was a part of the new emerging job market of in-house home healthcare uh, assistance, kind of like what we call companion care now, and that was just starting. And so they needed people to do all of like n- the non-medical stuff, like feeding people, making sure they took their medicine, making sure that you know just stay with the ho- in the house with them, make sure that they were okay. So I go to this uh, place and I get my first assignment, and it's in an all-white, working-class neighborhood. And I had never been there before. And it's made up of all these sort of row houses that are up on cinder blocks with the two steps up to the front porch. So I go and knock on the door, and there's a little window pane, and there's a little lace curtain over it. And I see this hand pull back the curtain, and there's this thin, sort of skinny, wiry, sort of sissy, space looking sort of a woman. And she slams the curtain shut, and she says, Go away! And I say... Ma'am, I'm from Health Skills. You ordered a sitter. And she says, go away! We don't want you here! And I hear her go away from the door, and I'm standing outside. It's July. It's hot. It's sticky. I'm in a place that I don't know anything about. And I hear her get on the phone, and she's now having an argument with my employer. And it's getting louder and louder and escalating, but she's not winning the battle. So she finally slams down the phone and comes to the door, and she just opens it and stands there. And from this moment on, I have to intuit Everything Because this woman Does not say a word to me The entire time That I am working for her So I just have to figure it out So she opened the door So I figured I need to come in And this house Is set up like A railroad apartment There's no hallway It's just a series of rooms That are connected by doorways So you can see The back of the house From the front of the house So we walk through The living room And we walk through The kitchen And when I get To the bedroom door I'm hit with this Horrible stench And I have to stop My own gag reflex The room is filled with the smell of bile And lying on the bed at a 45 degree angle Is this um, white middle-aged man And he's got tubes and IVs and things sticking out of him And he's on a breathing machine And coming up out of his mouth and nose Is this brown mousse or foam I later learned that this man is dying of cirrhosis of the liver and in the final stages, the liver is breaking down and it and the bile are backing up into the body cavity. It's leaking into the lungs and the breathing machine is pushing this stuff out as foam and that's when I figure it out that it is my job to clean that up. And so I go over immediately and I start cleaning him up. It's obvious because there's buckets and rags and towels and things. And so I wipe him off and he gets sort of settled. And it takes this process about 15 minutes before it starts to happen again. So I turn and look at the woman and she's standing there in the doorway with her arms folded with this sort of angry poker face. And I'm trying to figure out why is she angry at me because I just figured out how to do my job and I think I did a pretty good job considering because I had no help. And I don't know about here in Virginia, but in Indiana when you have these like awkward situations the first thing you try to do is normalize the situation like there's nothing wrong so I just looked at her in my best professional voice and I said I've got this now so she turns around and goes back through the rooms and goes and sits on the couch so here's the couch here's the doorway and here's a tv and the tv's on so she's leaning forward on the couch so she can look down the down the space and she can see me and I figured well I, I need to be somewhere where I can set her mind at ease so I'll sit there's a table and chair right by the bedroom doorway so I sit there at the chair so she can see me because she's not She's not even looking at the, nothing she's just got her eyes fixed on me it's very disconcerting so I thought I'm gonna just sit down and kind of take in my environment because I can see the bed and I can see the man on it and there's a confederate flag a floor to ceiling confederate flag behind him and now I'm starting to take in the, the decor because at this point in my life I am so into Martha Stewart she just started her magazine and I I have this whole new lexicon of all this really cool interior design vocabulary that I'm looking to test drive. So I'm looking around going, oh, they've styled this room with shaker furniture. And oh, look, they've got wainscoting. Check out that antique coat rack. I really love those decorative finials. So I look on the coat rack. And hanging up is this beautiful white robe with a cross-like patch on it and a matching hood. But you got to remember, I'm clinically depressed and I'm not connecting the dots. But it doesn't matter anyway because I'm just mesmerized by the buttonhole stitching around the eye holes in the hood. So I look down the hallway at the woman because I feel like this is not quite right. And she's still looking at me with this anger thing. And now it's starting to make me look anxious. So I was like, I need an activity, something to do. So I look on the table and there's this book and it's like, Oh, it's a Bible. Cause it's black. It's got guilt lettering. and I know my way around a Bible. This is fabulous. It's something in here for everyone. You know, Psalms, if you're sad, Proverbs for wisdom, it kicks off with Genesis. Very compelling story. I can read this. I'll have something to do. So I open up this book and instead of finding the testaments, I'm reading this thing that it's a horrible manifesto about the supremacy of the white race and how everybody else should be annihilated. And so I slam shut the book, I look at the man, I look at the robe, and then I look at the confederate flag and the gears start to switch and it's like oh shoot, I'm in the home of an honest to God Klansman and I am a black woman. So I look at the woman and she's looking at me like, do you get this now? And I'm like, oh shoot. And so now, by this time, the, the moose and stuff is starting to come out of the man. I'm mean, like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I got something to do. I got something to do. Because even though I'm looking calm on the outside, my brain is like running like one of those cartoons. It's like, oh, ooh, God. woo woo-hoo, woohoo, Woo-hoo. Like, I'm freaking out. I am like, oh my God. It's the Klansman. He's going to kill me. I don't know. What if he got Klansman friends and they come over for like Klansman poker? Are they going to be here? It's like, is lynching still a thing? Like, this is where my head is. It's like, I don't have time for a Rosa Parks moment, people. I need a job. I just need a job. So in the middle of all this craziness, I hear this voice that says, you know what? You need to get a hold of yourself. And that voice is the voice of my inner overachiever. It is that voice that is always kicked in. When, the middle, when I'm stressing out in the middle of a test or I have an urgent paper or a crazy project that I had to do and I would be freaking out, that voice would come in. And that's when I realized I absolutely can do this because I am an overachiever. So I'm going to do this job, I am going to get it done, I am going to get an A+, and I am going to get a paycheck, and then I am getting the heck up out of (laughs) here. And that is exactly what I did. For four hours that day, four times on the hour, I had to clean this man up. And I noticed that the woman went off to get something to eat, she seemed a little more relaxed. And at the end of that day, I left, she didn't say a word, and I came back the next day. And we did it all again. She still didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. She went her way. I went mine. And about the third day, I noticed when she opened the door, she went and crashed immediately on the couch. She fell asleep. And while I was working with that man, I realized that nobody was coming to help this woman, that she was there alone in this horror the entire time. And the only time she got any rest was when I was there. And so on the fifth day, the agency called me and they said, Steph, we don't need you to stop by anymore. The man has passed away. But his wife wanted us to leave you a message. She wanted to thank you for the care that you had given her husband. She said it was the best care he had ever had, and that included the time that he was in the hospital, and that she had the most rest and peace when you were there. And she left me a tip, which I didn't get to keep, but I walked away with a valuable piece of insight, which I will never forget, which is this proximity changes perspective and what I mean is this this woman and I came from social conditioning that told us that we should stay as far away from each other as possible and we were in this crazy situation but instead of reacting from a place of fear we chose to act from a place of integrity And by spending all of that time in close proximity with one another, we had the opportunity to to observe one another. And those observations changed our perceptions about us and the world around us, which in turn changed our perspective, which changed the trajectory of both of our lives. And so I didn't change the world, which is what I set out to do in my 20s, but I had certainly changed a part of my world. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh, you can stay standing. That's how racial reconciliation works. I think it's wonderful the way you ended it, Stephanie. Uh, Out to change the world. If you want to change the world, are you willing to have your world changed? That's hard. It is easier to run away from that door and to never go in that house. But that's God's method. That's what changes the world. I think it's a wonderful story. It takes tremendous courage to do. Are we willing to do it? It's clear that God wants us to do it but are we willing to do it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this wonderful story, a story of courage, a story of reconciliation, a story about how the world really changes. Jesus, you've given us the plan, a winning plan. Help us, God, to pursue it. Lord, thank you for Stephanie for being here today to share this powerful story. Let it continue to resound in our hearts so that we will go out and see our worlds change, God. Help us and bless us. Please bring peace on earth and goodwill towards all of humanity. In Christ's holy name, amen.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington,
0: Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.